Amen. And we do wait for the Lord to come. And we do pray for him to come quickly. As the Apostle John says at the the end of the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one with you this morning, you'll probably find one in the, uh, the bottom rack there of the chair in front of you. We're going to be looking this morning at God's saving grace in the life of a man named Saul who would become permanently known more or less forever afterwards as Paul, the Apostle Paul. This is a, a story of election. This is a story of irresistible grace. But we're not talking in terms of theological formulations or academic textbooks. This morning we see these doctrines played out in real time in the life of what was self-described as an insolent opponent. So look with me. We'll read it uh, just to remind you of where we're at in the text. And then we'll pray and we'll ask God to help us. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, as it was known at that time, men or women. Luke's point there is to remind you that Paul did not care. There is no mercy to be extended regardless of whether you're a woman or a child or what have you. Found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A man who's killing Christians is described by the resurrected and risen Lord Jesus as having persecuted him, not merely Christians. And he said, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just say thank you. We see from your word that Paul's life was saved for our sake. You showed mercy to him as an example of your perfect patience to all who will believe in you. I pray, Lord, that as we consider this text this morning. As we look more carefully at the biography that is Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would remind us once again that nothing can stop you from bringing salvation if you so choose. Father, I pray your people would take comfort and be reassured. As your son says in the Gospel of John, You hold us in your hand, and nothing can pluck us from it. We pray you'd reassure our hearts this morning through your word, by your spirit. Do this, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. There is no one more persistent than God when he decides he's going to save someone. If you can appreciate that more than Francis Thompson, I doubt many of you have heard of him, He was basically a complete and abject failure in every respect. 
He tried to become a priest in the Anglican church. He failed at that. He tried to become a medical doctor. He failed at that. He spent two weeks leaving the medical profession behind. He spent two weeks trying his hand as a fashioner of surgical instruments before he was removed from that position. He went on to become a door-to-door salesman selling Encyclopedia Britannicas. He spent two months as a door-to-door Encyclopedia salesman during which time he read the whole thing but sold nothing. He lasted a short time in the military before failing his physical exam, and we know from various biographies and various accounts of his life that the most likely reason he failed that exam was owing to his addiction to opium. One biographer put it this way, quote, It had been his habit to obey the command of the drug by the disposal of his books and medical instruments. Eventually, Francis Thompson found himself shirtless, literally shirtless, according to one biographer, homeless, penniless, with nothing to sell and nothing to get by on. He had resorted to stealing matches that he could sell matches in order to just have enough money to buy a cup of coffee. But within that shirtless vagabond beat a heart that God had claimed for himself. Francis Thompson would eventually be discovered by Wilfred and Alice Meynell, who were the owners and publishers of a magazine called Merry England, and he went on to write what has become described by many English critics as perhaps one of the famous, most famous, if not the most famous poem ever written in the English language pertaining to Christianity, called The Hound of Heaven in which Francis Thompson talks about the fact that he ran all those years from God, running away from him. And at the end, he could not outrun God's love. The poem goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of my own tears. I hid from him an under-running laughter. Up-vistaed hopes I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed years. From those strong feet that followed, followed after me, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy. They beat, but a voice also beat, more insistent even than the feet, and that voice spake to me. All things betray thee who betrayest me. What Francis Thompson was saying there was that despite his best efforts to turn to all manner of idols and all manner of substitutes, in the end, God would proclaim to him that all those things betray him and that he belonged to God. There is no one more persistent than God when he decides to save someone. We see this not only in the life of Francis Thompson, a man who by all rights should have died homeless, penniless, on the streets of England, and yet was rescued by God's grace. We see this also in the life of the Apostle Paul. Of course, you haven't met Paul yet as we've been journeying through the book of Acts. We have met a fellow by the name of Saul, And that's whom we encounter here in Acts chapter 9. 
says, Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them, men or women, to the Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, of course, he goes on to describe his encounter with Christ. Who is this man? What do we know about him? We've encountered him three, there are three references to him up until this point. We know he was there and he approved of the execution, the martyrdom of Stephen. And we encounter him here again in Acts chapter 9. So he makes his appearance at the tail end of chapter 7 and we see him again here in chapter 9. But what do we really, really know about this man? The first thing we need to know is that he had an amazing pedigree. He had an outstanding education. Um, He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. He lets us know this in the book of Philippians. And he is named after the most famous Benjaminite ever to live, the king, the first king of Israel, King Saul. And so it can go without saying that his parents were obviously very observant, very astute and devoted to their Jewish faith. Now, we also know from other places in the New Testament that he is a Roman citizen. That is, island that he was born on is Cilicia, And he is from a city called Tarsus. So we know he's a Roman citizen. We also know he did not, he was not born in Jerusalem. And yet in Philippians, he makes this amazing claim. He says of his own pedigree that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is an interesting claim for him to make. You'll recall from Acts chapter 6 that there was a dispute that arose. And the wording that is used there is that there was a disagreement that arose amongst the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And the distinction being in Acts chapter 6, this. Hebrews were Jews and Hellenists were also Jews, but Hebrews were Jews who lived in Jerusalem or lived at least in the immediately surrounding area around Jerusalem. Whereas Hellenists were those Jews who had been dispersed across the empire, who grew up in Greek-speaking cities, who indulged in Greek Hellenistic culture, and yet pilgrimaged back every year during the high feast, high festival days such as Passover. Paul makes an amazing statement. He acknowledges that he was born in Tarsus, and yet he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. From this, we can conclude that although he was not born in Jerusalem, he was educated in every aspect, in every detail of Jewish life. Indeed, I would go so far as to say he was probably from a very early age raised in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, don't flip there, just listen. Paul, giving his defense before a council that is obviously out to kill him once again, makes a statement that he is a Jew, and he says, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, But he makes the next statement, brought up in this city. And he's making his defense in Jerusalem. He says, a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city and educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And we know that Gamaliel was part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. We also know from other extra-biblical literature that Gamaliel was probably the most, the most revered scholar of the Torah, probably the most learned and most distinguished rabbi of his day. He, it is said that when Gamaliel died, there's a, a writing here from Josephus that when Gamaliel died, the glory of the Torah went out. This is how widely accepted and authoritative his opinion was regarded. And so Paul says he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. 
So you need to understand here, we have an individual with an amazing pedigree. He is born a Benjaminite. He is named for the most famous Benjaminite in all of the tribe. He was raised, his money had the, his parents had the money and the wherewithal to send him to Jerusalem to be educated. And not only was he educated, but they secured for him the finest tutors, indeed the greatest scholar of that time, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And Paul would show himself to be an amazing student, disciplined. We don't really have much of his pre-conversion writings. We don't really have much of his pre-conversion thought. But as we read the New Testament, we understand this was a man who was a deep thinker. As we read through the book of Acts, we understand this was a man who was a leader, not merely a thinker. He was a man of vision, and he was a man of action. He is what we might call an A-type personality. He was a leader of leaders. And we encounter him here seeking for glory by persecuting and pursuing the church. In Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues. He goes to the high priest and he asks for authority and for letters of introduction to all the synagogues in the northern regions in the city specifically known as Damascus, that he might continue to persecute Christians. Verse 1, still breathing threats and murder. This is a man who hated Christianity. He's well studied in all the law. We know that he is a Pharisee. We know that he is studied under the feet of Gamaliel. This is a man who has every academic advantage, who is intellectually smart, who has considered all the claims of Jesus Christ, and yet at the end of it all, he says of himself that he was most zealous for the traditions of his father. Let me just summarize it for you this way. Paul, being the individual who he is, is not going to quit easily. Saul, being the murderer that he is, is not going to give up He is not going to just wake up one day and say, oh, you know what? Maybe this whole Christianity thing is really worth a second look. This is a man who decided, who made a decision, who came to a point of clarity, no matter how wrong he was, and he continued to pursue that aggressively, murderously, and with hate. You might say of Paul that he's the kind of guy that when he goes all in, he goes all in. And he was all in against Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage, you understand that Saul was never going to get saved unless Jesus appeared to him visibly. He was so hardened in his heart that the only means by which Saul was going to come to faith in Jesus Christ was if Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road. And that's what the text records for us. Verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul got saved as a result of God's intervention. We come across now a rather interesting paradox within the scriptures. In 1 Timothy, we read it a moment ago. Paul says that he received mercy for this reason, that in him 
Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And in Galatians 1, Paul makes this admission. He says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone. He goes on from there. But we have this interesting statement. The man who set me apart from before I was born. And in Timothy, he saved me to show me forth as an example to all those who would believe in his perfect patience. Now what we have here is we have a man created by God, endowed with amazing abilities, all of which he bent towards the purposes of persecuting God. And God let him for an extended period of time. Paul describes himself as an insolent opponent. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you might be asking yourself the question, why Why did God let him do this for as long as he did? Why did God allow him to go forward? And as we consider the life of Paul, or Saul, we know that he was never going to repent if it hadn't been for Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. If you've ever gone to a restaurant, when you first, down, when you first sat down at this restaurant, you've never been there before, suppose they bring you a menu, you flip it open, you've never had anything to eat there before. What are you going to consider in terms of the meal you're going to eat? Well, all options on the menu are equally valid. You haven't tried anything, so you don't know if anything tastes good or not. You're going to try something, it might be good, it might be bad. But you will choose a meal, you will eat the meal, and you will form an opinion about that particular meal. Now, the second time you go to that exact same restaurant, they hand you a menu, you flip it open. Well, now you have a little bit of a different decision to make. You see, the decision has changed ever so slightly. Before, when you went, you were a complete blank slate. You could have gone this way, you could have gone that way. But you chose a certain path. You liked the meal or you didn't like it, which means that the second time you come to that same restaurant, you look at the menu, if you liked the meal before, you'll be tempted to play it safe. I'm going to go with what I like. I'm going to get the meal I had last time. It was good. Or you might still be living a little bit dangerously. You might try something else, and you're not sure whether you'll like that or not. It could have been that the time before you didn't like what you got, and so now you know for a fact at least one thing you will not choose the next time around. Either way, the decision you make the second time is influenced by the decision you made the first time. When it comes to the man Saul, here was a man who had all the learning and all the knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew Messiah was coming. He understood from the teachings of the Pharisees that this was the season in the life of the history of the nation of Israel in which they ought to be expecting deliverance and salvation. And yet when he considered the person of Jesus Christ, he rejected him. He found him not consistent with Paul's own ideas and his own conceptions of what a Messiah should look like. And having rejected him, he then concluded that this whole movement was a movement of blasphemy against what he considered to be the true coming Messiah. And he undertook it upon himself to begin persecuting this movement. Now, you see, every single action he takes is undergirded by a certain thinking. Everything he does is being propelled by a theology that is utterly false. And the reason why I want to draw your attention to that today is because I wonder how many of us know people who are the same way. Perhaps you've been at work. Perhaps you have a loved one in your own home. You've talked to them about Jesus. Everything you say to them doesn't seem to click or make sense 
because they're looking at it with a completely different perspective than what you're looking at it with. As Christians, we understand at some point early in our lives, there was a moment where we were looking up and we were thinking to ourselves, why is all of this here? Where did I come from? How did I get here? As we grew a little bit older, we came to a point where we recognized that this world was fundamentally broken. It wasn't as we expected it. It didn't turn out as well as we had hoped. We all experienced those disappointments, and we begin to wonder, why is it broken? And the question presents itself to our minds, how do we fix it? Now, as Christians, we answer these questions two ways. One, we're here because God made us. Two, this world is broken because of us, and God can fix it. But for many of us, as we're sharing with our friends and our neighbors, those two assumptions are completely gone. We're here, the secular world tells us, by evolution, random chance. We struck the lotto. We evolved from amoebas or monkeys or something like this. There is, therefore, with that as the foundation, nothing really wrong with this world. It's just advancing and evolving by random chance as it always should. Now, if you're a logical thinking person, you might ask yourself this question. I believe that I come from nothing. I am simply an evolved creature. And with that belief, I understand that there's nothing really wrong with this world. It's just evolving as it always has, as it should, as it's supposed to. And yet, I find within my own heart this continuing dissatisfaction, this continuing sadness over the fact that this world isn't the way I would wish it to be. And it's right then, it's right then, if you're having this conversation with your friend, it's right then in which most of you will jump in and you say, see that longing in your soul? That's something that didn't evolve. That's something that was put there by a creator. When you operate out of a humanistic evolutionary worldview, you think that men, man is the measure of all things and this is the greatest it can be and that we have the salvation necessary within ourselves to bring about deliverance from the current evil. As soon as a Christian comes along and says, you see, there's a problem with your logic. You don't really hear that because you've already rejected the foundational premise from which Christians operate. See, the Christian assumes all things are created. The unbeliever doesn't really think all things are created, that he's just really lucky to have the life, however bad or good it may be. He's just really lucky to have evolved into that life. And so, if you're sharing with that person, you find it can be very, very frustrating. How do I share the gospel to this individual in such a way that they will come to faith? And I have both good news and bad news for you this morning. The bad news is this. You can't share the gospel in such a way as to bring them to faith. Now that's bad news, but it also leads to some really good news. The only person who can bring salvation is God. 
And the good news is, and we have this from this particular text before us, when God decides to bring salvation, no one can stop him. Look at the text one more time. It says, verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the response comes back, I am Jesus. There's no extended discourse here on who Jesus is, that he was born of a virgin, that he grew up in Nazareth, that he was originally born in Bethlehem, that he fled to Egypt for a period of time. You know, there's no catching up here. And you know why? Because Saul already knew all of this. He'd already considered all of this, and he'd already rejected it. Everything he had been told about Jesus, everything he'd heard about this man named in Hebrew Yeshua, he had heard it, he had evaluated it, it had gone against all of his presuppositions, and as a result, he discounted all of it. Imagine his shock in which he sees what he knows must certainly be the, the God of the universe, and he says, who are you? To which the answer comes back, this one whom you have rejected. That's who I am. It shatters all of his preconceived notions. It destroys all of his weighty arguments. It takes all of his knowledge, all of his training, all of his upbringing as a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, raised in the strictest form of Pharisaism, at the greatest teacher of Israel, Gamaliel. It destroys all of that. Nobody else in all of the Jerusalem church was ever going to be able to convince Saul of the truth of Christianity. And despite all of that, despite his hardness of heart, despite the fact that he was going to continue on persecuting Christians in hatred of Christ, Christ saved him. And Christ was the only one who could save him. Which Paul then concludes, writing in his letter to Timothy, I received mercy. And we'll look at this next week, Acts chapter 9. The Lord says to Annas that he is a chosen instrument. He's going to carry his name before the Gentiles. That's one reason. But there's a second reason that Paul mentions, and it's here in 1 Timothy. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Why are you persecuting me? Is Jesus' question. To which Saul, rather confused, says, I thought I was killing Christians. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, you're killing me. You're persecuting me. And yet Jesus is showing up there on the road of Damascus to save Saul. Now this gives us incredible hope, church. It ought to. How many of you have wandered and strayed so far You've done so many things that you know are wicked and wrong. How many of you have ever entered into that place where you've been tempted to think to yourself, I've gone too far. I've done too much that's bad. And there's no hope for me.
If that's you today, I want you to understand that you absolutely can be reconciled to God. We have a number of visitors in the house this morning. I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all where you all come from. But perhaps you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I've come to hear more about this God, but at the same time, I'm not ready to go all in. And beyond all of that, I'm not sure I could go all in knowing all that I've done, knowing the wickedness of my heart. And if that's you this morning, I want you to understand that this man, Saul, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, goes on not only to get saved, but to become one of, if not the greatest champions of the church in the first century, surpassing all of his peers. He says of himself at one point, he even worked harder than any of the other apostles. The argument could be made that he pushed past the likes of Peter and John and James. You're asking yourself this morning, is it possible for someone like me to get saved? Yes, it's possible. Only Jesus can do it. And more than that, there's grace. If this is you, not only can you be saved by the grace of God, you can still find glory and honor. You can still be elevated by him through seeking good doing. Another question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do we sometimes doubt the ability of people to become instantly saved? I know I do. person comes forward, they say, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling in my heart, and uh, I think I want to get saved, I think I want to trust in Jesus, and they, they have these questions, they have these searchings, and these longings are quite normal. It happens to all of us, many of us, and I tend to think then from time to time that when I'm talking to people about the gospel, that I don't, I guess I, what I try to do is I, I try not to think this way, but inevitably I do think this way, and I think probably some of you do as well, that the gospel's going to take time. You're going to plant a seed, and they're not going to understand it all right away. You're going to talk about Jesus and dying on the cross, and it's going to go on and on. They're going to take months and years and maybe even in some instances decades, and they're going to chew on all of these things. And we tend to reduce the gospel. We tend to reduce conversion then to a process, a mechanical process in which certain gears have to turn in a person's mind or in his soul before he will come to salvation. And so when we think that way, we enter into witnessing relationships oftentimes not expecting a definitive yes or no for Jesus. And yet, we have to have that mentality blasted when we come to this particular text. Saul got saved in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of a moment, in the visual appearance of Jesus Christ. Does Jesus Christ visually appear to all of us in order to save us? No. Did he do so to Saul? Yes. But the point remains valid. In one moment, Saul was transformed forever. Which means that when we enter into those conversations, we have to hold two truths in tension. Number one, we don't save anyone, we don't convert anyone and our gospel witness, our testifying to the, to the cross of Christ, should not be done with the mentality that somehow we're going to sell this guy. We're going to somehow convince him. Because his heart is hardened. He is not coming to faith unless Jesus does a work in his heart. So we shouldn't enter into it with the mentality that we're going to have a really slick presentation and somehow we're going to convince this guy right then and there on the spot. And yet, at the same time, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We should enter into every single one of those conversations believing and expecting that it is possible that at the end of this conversation, this person's life is forever transformed and they will be as I am, a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. I know we, many of us struggle with this. And do you know how I know? There are these certain expressions that work their way into every evangelistic conversation I overhear. And I am guilty of it too. person says, oh, I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in creation, intelligent design. I don't believe in these things. And we respond and we say, I believe that this is just what I believe. I hope you're not offended by this, but I'm sorry if you're offended. You see, we enter in these conversations, and don't misunderstand me, I know a large part of this is our Canadian politeness. I know that we have to just say sorry for everything all the time. That's right. It's something that I'm painfully aware of from time to time. But I can't help but wonder, when we say that, this is just what I believe. Hands off, I'm just, this is kind of where I'm at. What we're conveying then is that this is not binding truth, binding for me and binding for you. This is just what I believe. But what we're really betraying is that we don't actually expect the gospel to convert right then and there on the spot. And the last thing that we can take from this text this morning as we conclude, we all have those loved ones, sons and daughters for some of us, brothers and sisters for others. We all have someone that we love and that we know If they were to die today, we'd never see them ever again for all of eternity. And we love those people. When we consider their lives, we think, here's a man who is devoted, who is caring, who is smart. Here is a man or a woman who has blessed me in so many ways whom I love. And you've tried year after year after year. Every Christmas season, every Easter season, you've engaged in the discussion, you've extended the invitation, you've told him the good news of the cross. And there's a moment that comes in which you are putting together your invitation list for this year's Christmas or this year's Easter service or someone's getting baptized in your family and you're sending out the invitations to all your other family members and relatives and you think to yourself, you know what, I've, I'm not going to invite that person because I've invited him year after year after year after year. And he's never coming. The third thing we can take away from this text this morning is that it doesn't matter how far that person may be. They are never beyond the electing, saving purposes of God the Father. And we should never quit on them. Quitting is easy. 
I've quit more things in my life than I've stuck with, as I'm sure many of you would agree. I tried Boy Scouts. I didn't like the mosquitoes. I tried, I tried whitewater river rafting. I got flipped out of it on my first time and dragged my feet across the bottom of the river on the rocks, shredded them, so I didn't try that ever again. I've tried all manner of things. My friends are trying to encourage me to try skydiving. Given my past track record of success, that's a suicide mission just waiting to happen. There are some things in life that you quit. There are some things in life that you just quit thinking about, not even bothering to try them. Quitting is easy. If you've ever done something difficult, you know that it's difficult. And anything in life really worth doing is usually hard, which means it comes with a degree of difficulty. And at the end of the day, it requires exertion. It requires determination. And if we're just being brutally honest with ourselves, we'd all much rather just prefer to sit in our lazy boys, eat our Twinkies, and watch the TV. Doing things is hard. And as we approach the question of conversion, we approach a topic that is, in human strength, utterly impossible. And so, since we're naturally inclined to be lazy, to sit in our lazy boys and to watch TV, we think, ah, you know, I can't really help anyone come to faith in Christ. And it's true. You can't. But what you can do is you can hold the hand of Jesus and walk with him as he uses you to achieve his purposes. Quitting is easy for you and me, but quitting for God is impossible. Paul says regarding Jesus in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. We may deny him, but he cannot deny himself. The heart of God is one of love. And so while it is easy for you and me to quit, because quitting is easier than actually doing the task to which we've been called, quitting is impossible for God. It's easier for him just to go forth proclaiming the truth and bringing all those to salvation whom he has elected. That needs to be our attitude as well. As we consider the Apostle Saul, the Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul, I want to leave you this morning with this encouragement. No one is beyond hope. No one is beyond the grace of God. No one is unworthy of your continued, repeated efforts to testify. So don't quit. There is no one more persistent than God when he decides to save someone. And I conclude with these words from the hound of heaven. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy. The feet beat, but a voice beat. More insistent even than the feet, speaking to me. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Let the Lord work and hold his hand while he does it. Pray with me, church. Father, we say thank you for saving Saul, for establishing him as an apostle in the early church. Lord, we know you are sovereign. We know, O oh Lord, that you have elected men, certain men and women, to inherit and receive eternal life, to be called sons and daughters of the Most High.
we know, Lord, that in the stubbornness of our hearts, we would never have ever come to faith in you if you had not revealed yourself to us and drawn us by your spirit. Lord, we have friends and family. We have dear ones whom we love, who even now walk as enemies of your cross. It grieves us, Lord. And I confess for myself as well as for I'm sure many others here this morning that we are so grieved that we despair and we quit. Oh Lord, I pray you would drive from our minds this lie that it depends upon us and remind us of this truth that when we walk into evangelism, we walk with you. I pray, Lord, you continue to call your people to holding your hand and to hoping in you as you bring salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.